and welcome to another edition of the Leaders Performance Podcast with me, your host, as per usual, John Porch, the editor here at the Leaders Performance Institute. I hope you're all well and ready for another fascinating episode. Today I bring you my chat with Jonathan Harding, a football correspondent in Germany who this year penned what may well be the definitive look at the player and coach development models in German football. The book in question is called Mensch, Beyond the Cones, and over the course of the next 30 minutes or so, we delve into the meaning behind the title as well as Jonathan's efforts to shine a light on the need to retain human values in a sport that risks losing said values. In many respects, Germany appears to be doing a better job than most footballing nations and we take a look at the coaching model which is seen as an exemplar. German coaches, and at least one Austrian, in the case of Southampton's Ralf Hasenhutl, are some of the most coveted in the European game, from Jürgen Klopp, now a European champion with Liverpool of course, to Julian Nagelsmann, a 31-year-old coach who has just taken the reins at the ascendant RB Leipzig. All of these coaches, to varying extents, have benefited from the German Bundesliga being viewed as a development league for players and coaches alike. It was not always that way, though, and the low point was a Germany group stage exit at the 2000 European Championships. That ignominious showing 19 years ago sparked a revamp in coach and player development standards that culminated in Germany's triumph at the 2014 World Cup in Brazil. And as we saw at last year's World Cup in Russia, the team has since fallen from that pinnacle. But as bold decisions were first made in 2000, so Jonathan argues that equally affirmative action is needed now. Coach education and development, by the way, is just one of the topics we regularly explore at the Leaders Performance Institute. So for more insight along those lines, and much more besides, sign up to become a member of the Leaders Performance Institute by inquiring at leadersinsport.com forward slash performance. Anyway, Mensch is a fantastic account of one of Europe's premier football cultures and Jonathan proved himself to be an absolute gentleman when sitting down with me to record this interview. With any luck, the next half hour or so will convince you to give Mensch a chance. Jonathan Harding, welcome to the Leaders Performance Podcast. Thank you very much for having me, John. Now, you're here today to talk about your new book, Mensch Beyond the Cones. But firstly, what is a Mensch, Jonathan? And how did this book come into fruition? What inspired you to write it? What is a mensch? Well, it's a good question. I mean, it's the German word for person, human. It's also a word in German that can be used uh, out of sort of aggravation or frustration. You'd say mensch, you know, sort of like, oh, come on. It's also a word that can be used to describe someone being a, a good person. That's not a German word in that sense. That's a Yiddish word. So there's quite a lot of variation to the meaning behind it. And I thought it best summed up what I was trying to do with the book. And ultimately, that was to explain or shed some light through the stories of a number of different coaches on how coaching needs to return to more human values, particularly in football. Because I think we've forgotten that the heart of all sport is that they are just people, whether they're coaches, whether they're players, whether they're members of staff, everybody in the game needs to be viewed and, and remembered as, as humans. And I think that's something that I was really keen to, to put across. What inspired me to write this story was a combination of the fact that I felt there was a huge lack of respect or consideration of, of the human values or the human element in sport, particularly in football. And I thought it was time to address that, particularly from a German perspective. And because I read Living on the Volcano by Michael Calvin, and that gave me a lot of insight into what it was like in, in England for coaches at all levels. And, you know, in between a lot of the footballness, there was a lot of human interest in those stories that really struck a chord with me. And obviously, Michael Calvin is, is a specialist in that subject when it comes to human interest. And so I, I thought, well, it's odd that no one's done that in Germany. There's a lot of interest in German football generally, especially since the World 
World Cup win in 2014. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to speak to some brilliant people who had so much to say. Now, of course, you tell the story through the eyes of several coaches who go some way towards revealing the humanity you allude to. You also explain that humanity and humility are viewed as essential skills on Germany's elite coaching licence, the Fußball Lehrer, which means football teacher in English. Being a teacher is not restricted to training and tactics. So what are some of the ways that the Fußball Lehrer is structured to assist coaches navigating a world you describe in Mensch as stubborn and self-confident? Yeah, the, the best thing about the Fußball Lehrer, particularly that I found speaking to Frank Vormuth, who's no longer there, but who has made such a difference to the course. And then obviously Daniel Niedkowski later on, who is still there, who's now taken over Frank's job is that there seems to be a breadth of subject matter for coaches to, to handle and every situation is considered from so many different angles. Obviously, in, in light of recent developments in youth football, there have been some question marks about whether too much focus has been laid on tactics and whether not enough has been focused on other elements. But I think speaking to Frank and Daniel, it was clear to me that there's enough being done there to support coaches in those environments and how to handle situations. You know, even in smaller drills, there, there's the example that Frank gave me when he was teaching Julian Nagelsmann. You know, some of the things that you want to apply are great in theory but not always that good in practice and you have to bear in mind that sometimes the theory translates differently you know what works on a piece of paper again has to be applied to human beings and human beings will react differently to how things look on a piece of paper and i think that's the most important thing going forward for coaches to consider and i do think the course takes that into consideration when it comes to educating coaches. I mean, Frank did say to me he wants to improve that base level of foundation and, and knowledge from an earlier stage in the coaching development, which is impressive because it doesn't just mean that the top elite level coaches have all of the tools necessary, but also those coaches at a lower level do as well. I was just impressed by the, the breadth of the course. I mean, there's so much detail there. I was particularly impressed by the number of educational hours that were being put in. I think it, you know, somewhere like around the 800 mark when you look at England and other countries, sometimes they're much, much lower. And I asked Frank why that, and he's why was that the case? And he said, look, you know, in Germany, we want to do things right. You know, obviously, the, the knock-on effect or the, the added part of that is that they're in the position to do so, you know, financially and in terms of facilities, they're able to extend their learning hours far beyond what the minimum is from the local rules. But I commend that approach because it, it means that you're not just taking the minimum steps, you're doing the maximum. And I was just impressed by the, the, the sheer breadth of the course and, and the detail that's involved. And does the football lehrer gain a lot of interest from abroad? I mean, definitely. There were a couple. He, Frank told me that a couple of people came to visit an interest uh, from outside. AZ Alkmaar came to do a piece on uh, the coaches from there. Came to, I think there was a journalist and the coaches came to visit once. I mean... The blueprint, especially in and around the 2014, 15 years, was was highly coveted because of the success that they'd had. And also, when you look at the steps that are being taken in the Bundesliga, obviously it's been labelled a developmental league, but that is not a bad thing. And I think that the fact that that's come across in a negative sense is problematic because there's so much positive to be had in developing coaches as well as players in this league. And I think the outside interest in head coaches being developed at clubs and then being given the chance as the first team manager of clubs is particularly interesting for, for teams abroad because it's not often that you see teams taking the approach to not just develop youth players, but to develop youth coaches who can then go on to play a role in the first team. And did the Fußballlehrer in its modern iteration come about as part of the big reset in German football after Euro 2000? 
The initial reset in 2000 was based around uh, youth academies and improving the structures. Obviously, changes were made to the coaching course around that time as well. But I think the greater focus around Euro 2000 was about players. I mean, what ended up being interesting in terms of the development was that you got to a later stage around 2010 where players from the academies that were launched after 2000, because it became compulsory for Bundesliga teams to have youth academies at that point, and that then births a generation of players that eventually guided Germany to the title in 2014, so 14 years later. What's interesting about that development is that you end up having coaches that have coached them at the youth academy level, eventually coaching them at first team level much later because the coaches have finally made the progression to the first team and are coaching players like Mario Götze or Andre Schürrle or you know, Matt Hummels who have come through a youth system and have had experience of coaches who they know from previous years and that's always been the most interesting thing to see that the development of the coaches has i wouldn't say mirrored youth academy players but it's been very similar in terms of the fact that they've gone along the same path and ended up in the same place and jonathan why was germany so well equipped to carry out this overhaul which started back in 2000 i mean they made bold decisions and i think that was the thing that really impressed most people especially after uh, all of those Years of frustration. I mean, let's not forget that in 2002, they made the World Cup final. And I think people were a bit surprised by that because that wasn't necessarily part of the plan. That team was aging and it was relying on basically two star players and in Michel Balak and Oliver Kahn. And I just don't, I think if they had won that, it might have set them back. One of the coaches told me in the book, the worst thing that they did was win the World Cup in, what was it? Was it 1990? Um, That was the worst thing that they could have done because it really set them back. And what the positive outcome of 2002 was that they didn't win because actually it kept their development going the way that they wanted to. They made brave decisions. They realized that they needed more young, they needed younger players. They needed a much bigger pool size of younger players. And when you make those decisions and they work out, of course, people will always say, wow, you know, fantastic work, great decision. But you've still got to do it. You know, it can go either way. They decided to improve the youth facilities, they decided to to change the coaching approach and to just be bold. And for a country that isn't always bold, particularly in recent years, I think that was a really decisive moment. They, they decided to make some big changes and uh, it paid off. Was the real triumph for Germany in Brazil in 2014 the fact that so many young players had come through in the years prior to that success? I think the turning point for Germany was definitely Euro 2000. Everything comes from that moment. I mean, it really it really does. Failure is perhaps in this case, or not just in this case, but in so many cases, it can be the absolute catalyst for the greatest level of success because it really forces you to reassess, or at least it should, it forces you to reassess where you went wrong and you can really make a new start if you make the right decisions. So everything that Germany have done in the modern era, I would say, is really as a result of the changes made at the, new, at the start of the new millennium. The success in Brazil is the perfect example of that. That's the the end goal, the summit, if you like, of the changes made 14 years earlier. The coaching is still going. You know, I think the players are now in a different cycle. That's a whole nother conversation in itself. Now Germany have started a new cycle in terms of development and they have to start again, especially after Russia. But the coaching, I think, has taken another step forward after 2014 and has recognized the opportunity or the possibility of educating coaches from inside their own clubs and has you know given them the opportunity to do something special because you know you don't see it in the premier league you don't see it in other leagues where coaches get the chance to coach in youth teams and then move on to the first team you know it just doesn't happen so 
I think that's that's an evolution that is still continuing. Whereas I think on the playing side, I think that's now in a new cycle. Mensch is packed with memorable quotes, but one that sticks out here and now is Ismail Atalan, the current head coach of German third-tier side Sportfreund Lotta, excuse my pronunciation there, who tells you in the book, there are no good or bad coaches. There are appropriate and not appropriate coaches. What was he getting at? Everybody has an assessment period that's wrong of coaches and it's always a case. And I think this is a somewhat, somewhat reflective of the way in which society, not as a whole, but often in football or in sport assessment, is broken down into very yes or no, wrong or right, black or white situations. And I think there, has to be, there have to be so many more things that are taken into consideration than, than just those parameters. It's, and because you can't measure something so complex on a 50-50 consideration. And I think the beauty of Atalan's statement is really, is this manager the right fit for the club? You know, are we talking about someone who is bringing a philosophy that matches the philosophy of the club? Or is the philosophy of the club reflecting uh, open enough to change to accommodate the manager? Is this a fit in terms of does the head coach and the board work together? Is this a group of players that then will also succeed because they reflect the manager's philosophy and style of play? In that sense, that's exactly what he means. And it's great to see because, and it's great to hear because it's exactly the right way to assess whether a coach should be at a club or not. And too often, the statement is very, as I say, it's very black or white. And, you know, there is so much grey to be explored and to be considered in football and in sport. I mean, you can extend this metaphor into almost all walks of life, you know, politics, society. The, the, The assessment of things being wrong or right instantly or this person being a good or bad person, it's the same issue. It's not always as simple as that. So a brilliant way to assess it is, are they appropriate or not? Are they the right fit or not? And there are a plethora of questions that extend off that further, you know, and you have to only look in in the Premier League for a number of examples as to why some of the appointments are being made on the wrong criteria. Is this manager the right fit for the club? Doesn't appear to be a question that many Premier League teams are asking. And that is deeply problematic for me, because if you can't ask that question, then it means you haven't even addressed it in the first place. You talk at length in Mensch about RB Leipzig, whose rise has coincided with that of German football in general. They certainly seem a fine example of astute use of resources and innovative thinking in the German game. And central to the club's rise has been Helmut Gross, a club advisor whom you speak to at length in the book, and maybe that job description doesn't quite do him justice. You also talk about Ralph Ranić, the sometimes sporting director and head coach of the club, as well as former head coach Ralf Hasenhutl. How have the club's sporting leaders challenged norms and expanded the limitations of the club? Well, I mean, Leipzig are in, it's important to say from the start, the Leipzig are in the fortunate position to be very financially healthy. And, I, you know, there's obviously a large debate in Germany about the origin and the true nature of whether they are a football club. Some people do not consider them a football club because of the backing and, and financial support of Red Bull. That has given them an advantage, obviously. But I think at the same time, it's important to still acknowledge, and that's what I tried to do in the book, the innovation of someone like Ralph Rannick. Because Ralph Rannick was pretty much creating ideas and making waves in German coaching well before Leipzig were even a concept. You know, He was doing it at loads, loads of different clubs in Germany. And I think that's important. He, he is really someone who has taken a type of football 
mastered it and forced his team to play that way to the highest possible standard. And you look at the players that they buy, they ultimately reflect the style of play extremely. So they never tend to make purchases that don't accommodate or don't fit what they want to do. So I think Rani deserves a lot of recognition in terms of what he's done for German football as a whole. Helmut Gross is the man in the shadows, if you like. He's the mastermind. And I, a lot of the coaches I've spoken to in this book and just generally consider him the absolute mastermind of German football in terms of coaching full stop because he knows so much. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that he's also a bridge engineer and he has that mind and that ability, that architectural mind, if you like, who's able to create something like a bridge and then apply the same sort of mechanics in his mind to okay well how do I build this team or how do I build this player or how do I build the the development skill set that I need to this player to follow to improve he deserves a lot of credit and I think together with Ranić they have formed a fairly formidable coaching mastermind group that has allowed or been allowed to flourish because of the conditions that Leipzig are able to to work under I mean and as for Ralf Hasenhutl I think he was just the right coach at the right time. He did the same sort of thing at Ingolstadt and he just got the opportunity to do it to a higher standard at Leipzig. I think the harder thing is in a situation like that is when you have someone like Ranić and you have someone like Hasenhutl, who is the boss and who is really leading? And then it becomes a question of Ralf Hasenhutl obviously has a great amount of confidence in himself and justifiably so for the work that he's done. But, you know, Ralf Ranić feels the same and he's done it over a longer period of time. And I think that's one of the reasons why their work could only go on for a certain amount of time. So the only danger with being innovative and being at the front of a field, if you like, and the forefront of new development in, in sport, particularly in football, is that it often means that you can't always work with the same people for an extended amount of time because eventually friction points will come and people will want to do their own thing or want to move on. So as much as I think their innovation is important, I think it's also necessary to consider that you can't always do that forever, whether that be because of too many talented people in one room or because innovation is not something that has an unlimited amount of time anyway, because it can only really happen for a short period of time. And I suppose critically, they never lost track of the human element either. I mean, yeah, Helmut Gross definitely talks about that. He says it's really important to make sure that you don't have too much of an emotional connection to some players because sometimes you might have to sell them and that can be hard if you've taken them to a certain point personally as a coach and develop them and then they have to move on. It can be difficult. So I think in that sense, they're considering the human element in a way that requires some restriction because you can't just dive in fully to the human element and be all about the person without considering the sporting aspects. Otherwise, we would just create sporting teams based on how friendly we were or how much of a good person person X was. And obviously, that's not how it works. And, you know, there still need to be parameters where you can assess a footballer that are linked to the sport. You know, it can't just be about who they are. You know, he's a great guy or, you know, she's a really important player for the dressing room. That's important, but also their performance and, and the data that goes with their performance has to play a role in, in whether they stay at the club or not. I think Leipzig do a relatively good job of recognizing the person behind the player. I mean, they, their academy is strictly focused on, on really developing, giving people opportunities when they bring young players in. They don't, really, they don't really bring players through their own academy. They tend to buy externally and then develop them as young players. And I get the feeling that they are given the opportunity to, to grow and work as a team 
especially from you know what Ralph Rannick has said at, at the coaching conferences that I've heard him speak at. There certainly does seem to be a sense of team building. Obviously, you have to take it with a pinch of salt. You don't know how much of that is true or how much of that is a projected image that the club want you to believe. But when it comes to people, I, I'd like to hope or I'd like to believe that more often than not, people are being honest about that kind of thing. And yeah, I mean, I, I don't think Leipzig are at the absolute top of human recognition in terms of football teams in Germany, but I think they're doing a, a decent job. They're certainly not neglecting that, that side of things, so far as I know. Moving on, the strength of the coaching community comes across throughout Mensch, particularly when you talk about the annual ITK Congress. What are those summits and how do they help coaches to better develop their understanding of themselves? Well, those summits are really about exchange. Every year there's an opportunity over the course of three days for the top level coaches to meet up, to listen to lectures from different people who might be presenting new ideas to inspire them, to take back to their coaching wherever they coach, you know, whether their club be small or, or not. There are certain parameters that coaches need to attend. They need to be you know, members and, and I think they need to have a certain coaching qualification to be there. And ultimately, it's just about exchange. I mean, I've been to two, one in Borkham and one in Dresden. And, you know, you really see coaches from all over. They get the opportunity to look at new equipment, people with new training gear. They, they're also there offering their, their stuff up. And it's really interesting to, to get so many smart people in the room discussing football and listening to people who come in and, and speak and, and have, you know, you have guest lecturers who might come in and talk about the importance of certain types of nutrition or this type of training mechanism or how we use this approach in youth football to improve individual skill sets. You know, and there was obviously one that I was really, really taken aback by because it really does hit the nail on the head for the current issues in the Germany team. And I'm, we can talk about that later, but it was something that was very timely in terms of his presentation. It was to do with youth development and how we need to actually completely radically change youth football in Germany if we are to improve the skill set of individuals. Because at the moment, there are some deeply huge, or deeply problematic issues with, with the game. And, and, and it's those kind of lectures that are really insightful, because I think not just for you know, the journalists who want to attend, but also for the coaches who are there, it's, it's something that they can take back to their club. And ultimately, it's a, it's a great opportunity for, for coaches to see and meet each other, but also to, to listen to experts in different fields. And do you know of a summit that takes place on this scale, Jonathan, in any other football playing country? I think there is one in England. The name slips me by. I think it's organised by the LMA. I have certainly seen similar ones. And I, if I've you know, got that wrong, I'm sure anyone who's listening probably knows far more about this than I do in terms of coaches elsewhere, coaching conferences elsewhere. But I, I think there's, I've said definitely seen a couple advertised in the UK, whether they are sponsored by the LMA or not, I'm, I'm not sure. I think I remember seeing one that was. But if not, then I would say that it was a must because it really seems to me to be a given because not only do you enhance the community of coaches and coaching, but you, you provide greater support for individuals and you provide innovation and, and food for thought really for coaches around the country. You give them an opportunity to come together and spend time together to make new connections and new friends, which I think is very important in an industry that isn't always the most, or isn't always the friendliest, shall we say. And you offer the opportunity to learn and I don't think, you know, 
lots of coaches will always say the learning doesn't stop and that's very very true and I think the worst thing you can do as a coach is when you get to the top and you are successful is to think that you've done everything that you can and that there's no need to change or adapt you know that's the biggest mistake that you can make when you're at the top that is the, the time when you really should be doing the most consideration and evaluation of, of what got you there and whether that's going to keep keep you there in the future and I think these are the type of conferences that really offer the opportunity to do that. And is it going too far to suggest that the ITK Congresses feel German? Uh, no, um, I think there's a, you know, it depends how you define German. One of the, the great stereotypes about Germany and Germans are that they are extremely organized and that everything's run to a relatively tight schedule. That is certainly true of the Congress, but I wouldn't say it's done to the point where you think, oh my goodness, and I'm three minutes late, it's a problem. So I don't think a lot of the stereotypes that people think about Germany are really in place in this instance. This is actually one of the, the few places, at least to an external mind, that Germany is willing to be open and flexible about new ideas. I often find the country, at least to my mind, really quite conservative and in some respects rather stubborn, not just when it comes to football, but a lot of aspects in, in the country. And, and this is one of those instances where I thought, oh, okay, well, they're opening up their, their mind and their ideas to something different. And I thought that was a big positive because, as I say, that's not something you see all the time. I wanted to talk a little bit, Jonathan, about Germany's group stage exit at the World Cup in Russia last year. I guess that shows that Germany's player development and coaching models aren't exactly perfect, of course. But what do you feel went wrong on a structural level at that tournament? I mean, I was there for the tournament and I watched every single game in Russia. And I have to say, I mean, obviously, it's easy to say with hindsight that it felt predictable. But Germany really were the masters of their own downfall. You know, there were a couple of occasions where players and coaches had said that they thought that they would just be able to turn it on when it came to the tournament. And that was a huge red flag for me. You know, that's if that's the mindset that you're taking, oh, when we get there, we'll be all right. You know, that's already problematic. No great champion has ever succeeded with that approach, especially a champion that's looking to defend their title. You have to, you have to start again. You have to reassess. And I don't think Germany did that. I, I was quite damning in my review, but that's because I was able to be relatively close to the situation and I felt, I felt the words were necessary. Germany got lazy after they won the World Cup in Brazil and I think they got ahead of themselves. They got confident and they thought they could just do the same thing over and over again. At the Euros in 2016, they were, they were still playing very good football. They were just unfortunate in the semi-finals to come up against a France team who ultimately were better than, than them on the day, but that can happen in semi-finals. The problem was that they were dragging their heels already a little bit at that point. You know, Bastian Schweinsteiger should never have been in that team. And as much as I consider the impacts that he will have on the change room and as a leader, you've got to start to pivot away towards a new group after 2014, because 2014 was quite clearly the end of a cycle. You know, we were talking earlier about the changes made at the beginning of the millennium and, and Germany winning the World Cup in 2014. That was the end of that cycle. And Germany didn't recognize that. And Joachim Löw didn't recognize that. And that was the biggest problem. He didn't recognize that he needed to change the football. That was an issue. They didn't. They played the same football. They picked too many of the same players who, as much as they still have individual quality, if you're in the national team for so long, then you can also have not personal issues, but you can perhaps get too comfortable. And ultimately, if you've already won a World Cup, you've got to have a special kind of determination in you to find that extra level of motivation. And I think too often in that Germany team, they didn't. Structurally in the DFB, they, they had a president in Reinhard Grindel who was not 
a president who was aware of football. He was a politician. That's problematic because you lack competence at the absolute top level of one of the largest sports associations in the world. And that's a huge issue in my book. There weren't enough people around Joachim Löw to provide the type of exchange and ideal sort of innovation that he needs or he needed. Every coach can't just be expected to do that on their own. And I think the best coaches in the world are surrounded by the best coaching staffs. And that was not the case for Joachim Löw after 2014. And that was problematic. And ultimately, you get to a point where Germany played the same football that they played in 2014. He thought he could still play that heavy possession game. And that then throws up question marks about youth development and where the individual talented uh, individual kind of players who are able to do something special in games or good in one-on-one -on -one situations, where are they coming from? Because too much criticism was put on the fact that Germany are continually educating or creating young players who are good from a tactical perspective and who know how to play systems and are extremely technically good, but they don't have the ability to turn something on in a one-on-one -on -one situation because they haven't necessarily grown up with that. And ultimately, that's something that I was, you know, I learned a great deal about in Dresden when I listened to Professor Matthias Lochmann, when he was talking about how we need to change youth football in Germany, there needs to be a move towards the style of game called Faninho, which I also explain in the book, where you take away this seven versus seven under eight, nine age group football, where ultimately, if you're right back in that situation, you might touch the ball twice in a game. And who, either as a parent of that child or as the child themselves, wants that every Saturday? I don't think anybody wants that. Well, if you, if you give them the option to play a game where they will score goals, well, they'll have a lot more touches of the ball and ultimately, most importantly, they'll have a load more fun. That seems like an obvious change. And the, the long-term impact of that structurally for the DFB is that you create more players who are comfortable in one-on-one -on -one situations because they have more touches of the ball from a younger age. The tactics and the technique that comes later when they get to a, a, an older age group, but they're going to have a lot more ball control and that can never be a bad thing. So there's a whole list of issues that the DFB, I think, for many people looking from the outside, looking in, didn't address. And I think it all starts with having a certain level of arrogance about how they were approaching the tournament. And for me, that was really, really disappointing because the 2014 victory was so important for the country, so important for what it meant for integration, for football, for where the country was, for the blueprint of, co of coaching, but also the importance of the Bundesliga. And in the last few years, they've really suffered as a result of of not taking that success and doing more with it. And my final question, Jonathan, do you feel that German football has the tools to learn from the mistakes made in Russia? I absolutely do. And I, I think it's because of people like Daniel Nikovsky, for example, who's now in charge of, of the Fußballera coaching course at the academy. Uh, you know, you've got great people who've come in and they do understand that changes are needed. They've already made changes to the Fußballera course to allow for more flexibility and more individualization. These are positive steps that you would hope that an enormous sporting association like the DFB would take. So it's refreshing to see that. I think the most important thing for, for the DFB and for German football as a whole is to, is to be bold again, like they were at the start of the millennium, and to make strong choices and to look towards the future rather than still be beaming about the success that they had in the past. I think they have to address the issues. They have to be proactive. They have to shake off the shackles of perhaps some, I don't want to say old-fashioned, but slightly perhaps out-of-date thinking. And they have to look towards being innovation and not wait for other countries to show them the way, but make the way themselves. And uh, not bring out the old phrases or, you know, say German values and German virtues. There needs to be a real move towards innovation and to be bold and to, to listen to as many people as possible 
so that they can move forward with the most amount of knowledge and have the right people in place to exchange and to share that knowledge. Because ultimately in any organization, if there's not enough knowledge and there's not enough people listening at the high, highest level, then anyone else at any other level is going to struggle to, to repeat that, that mindset, that value. That's something that if we have to do, uh, I say I am encouraged that they have made a good start, but the answer will be in how they perform in the European Championships next year and ultimately in the World Cup in, two, in 2022. And time will certainly tell. Mensch, Beyond the Cones is available now. I thoroughly recommend it to all of our listeners. It's a fantastic read. And Jonathan Harding, thank you so much for your time today. John, thank you so much for having me.